And we're going to be looking at the question of what is the nature of spiritual gifts. That is to say, what is a spiritual gift? We're going to look at that in general. We're going to say that gifts are plunder. And we're also going to say gifts are the presence and ministry of Christ to us. And then we're going to look at some more specific gifts. We're going to look at prophecy, tongues, and celibacy. Three gifts are a little more obscure and potentially confusing. Uh, And you might be wondering to yourself, why does this matter to me? Uh, Why is the nature of gifts even relevant? Uh, In fact, uh, this morning we had some unexpected guests, at least for me. We had 50 people from Canada, from Missouri, from all over the place who were doing a short-term mission trip on the reservation. And uh, they came from all sorts of trip backgrounds. And so hearing a sermon on the nature of gifts is kind of random. (laughs) And... um, I was talking to the supervisor and said, you might have to do a little debriefing. And he's like, you have no idea. (laughs) So um, uh, let me just say, if this is your first uh, time visiting our church or something like that, uh, definitely come back Sunday, another Sunday. But I do think, (laughs) another visit, that'd be great. Um, But I do think this topic is, is relevant to us potentially because it answers a question that sometimes nags at us. Uh, I remember a a conversation I was having with a Presbyterian minister last year. Uh, He's a very sharp guy. He's somebody who probably prides himself on not being gullible. And he was describing an experience he had, a a counseling experience. And he was in his office one day. He was talking with this person, and this person was sick and ill. And he was sort of sitting in his desk, or at his chair, and the desk was between them, and the guy was sitting opposite him. And the man is talking, and as he's talking he begins to see a rainbow form above his head. And the man doesn't see it, but the pastor sees this this rainbow very clearly. And then a voice from heaven comes and says, "Uh, this man will pass away a week from now, and you need to prepare him to die well. And so he took it quite seriously, and he went and uh, talked about finances and maybe grudges or bitterness and things like that. Uh, And exactly seven days later, that man passed away. Uh, pretty wild stuff. Most of us haven't seen rainbows over each other's heads, but we have had experiences that are strange and mysterious, and we receive them as being gifts from God. And they're many times very meaningful and impactful on our lives. And so thinking about this topic uh, will hopefully help us receive these as good gifts from God, being able to receive them and not be skeptical and suspicious but it allows us to also be discriminating and responsible in how we handle these experiences. So we kind of need both those. We need to be responsible, but we also need to have an open hand to the Lord to receive the things he wants to give to us. Uh, So that's our hope today. At least we'll see if we get there. And um, let me pray and then we can jump into this. Lord, we are uh, so grateful that you have made yourself known. Uh, It is not difficult. We don't have to go find you, but you have given us your word and you have ultimately given us your son. Lord, would you give us insight into your words this morning, uh, insight into this difficult and many times personal topic. Uh, Lord, would you uh, help us to be discerning and wise, helping us to know when to trust you and when to be suspicious. Uh, We pray for this in your son's name. Amen. So we're looking at gifts right now, both generally and in the specific. And the first thing we see that gifts in general are plunder. Uh, let, me, let me read one of our passage, passages to you. If you have a bulletin, you can read along with me. This is the Ephesians 4 one. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul goes on to interact with some of their thoughts on this. And picking up again in verse 11, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In Paul's mind, these are all gifts. Even though he's naming people, these are gifts. And he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Uh, Paul here is describing uh, Christ's resurrection and ascension. And he's quoting Psalm 68:18, And what he's saying is, through Christ's resurrection, he secured himself a kind of victory. Uh, this is because the world has been held captive to sin by spiritual enemies. And through the resurrection, Christ has defeated and disarmed them. And he's taken the tools that have been originally used to oppress us, and he's repurposed them and refined them to be instruments for giving life to each other. Uh, the abilities of, of our enemy have now been turned into resources for God's kingdom. And the irony in this is that these abilities were originally gifts from God that have been distorted and just maimed by our enemy himself. So what this means is if you have, say, the gift of teaching, uh, that gift originally belonged to spiritual powers, and they used this ability to tell lies about who God is. Uh, they would say things like, did God really say? Uh, if you have, say, the gift of administration, uh, that gift originally belonged to the enemy, and it was a way that he would plan and scheme and organize, working to overthrow God's kingdom. And now some of you have that gift now. To say that gifts are plunder is to say that the tools of the enemy that have harmed us have been taken away from them, and they've been given out to each one of us to be a blessing to our community. I have a buddy who grew up in southeast Houston, grew up in South Park, that might mean something to some of you, uh, and he lived a, a pretty rough life. Uh, he experienced a lot of very traumatic things growing up, and hoping to escape that life, uh, he joined a gang when he was 12. And... Um, he did a number of the typical things that you would do in a gang. He started dealing narcotics, lived uh, a pretty violent life. But one of the things that happened was he, through those experiences, he began to develop very uh, careful, precise skills. One of the things he could do was he could read people very quickly. You know, so he could, he could meet somebody, look at them, trade a few sentences, and know whether he could trust this person or not, and know what they thought of him also. And he knew how to develop that trust or how to break that trust. He was also very resourceful and clever and cunning in doing problem solving. He was just, just in general, he was somebody who was able to overcome problems in a, in a very creative, innovative kind of way. He would live in this life for 15 years, and you can imagine how dark and oppressive his, uh, that whole experience was. And one day he was in his mid-30s and he was uh, in a road trip, and he was driving from Seattle to Houston, and his car broke down in Denver. And it was through that experience, through a, a series of different events that happened, he met a pastor there, and the pastor eventually led him to Christ. And then Christ began to uh, heal him and uh, redeem him. And, and what was beginning to happen was that um, he had a new calling in life. He decided that he wanted to come, uh, become a, a counselor, a therapist. And so right now he's in Denver. He's, uh, he's pursuing a PhD in psychology. And what's happened in his story is that God has taken those skills that he originally had, that ability to read people quickly, that ability to um, 
you know, uh, be resourceful and cunning and different things. And he's using those skills to actually love people now rather than harm and hurt other people. And this is what it means for us uh, in a similar way is that God doesn't waste the sad parts of our stories. It's that he is very interested and active in taking the dark parts of our past and refining them so that we're not bringing harm to people, but we're actually bringing a blessing to other people. God rescues us to be a rescue for other people. This is what it means that gifts are plunder. <clears throat> I want to take a bit of a, a turn. I said we look at some of the specific gifts. And if you're doing a survey of, of spiritual gifts, you just kind of got to look at some of these ones that are kind of obscure and confusing and bring up a lot of question marks. Uh, tongues, prophecy, and celibacy, these are a few things I want to comment on. Uh, I will say at the advance, though, uh, that I realize that there's a number of different life experiences here in this room and that there's also a number of different theological viewpoints. People have different takes on these things. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to present my own thoughts and uh, you're free to come and ask questions afterwards. We can get coffee later in the week if you want, and I'd be happy to do that. And uh, curious what you learn also, what you're thinking on these things. But for now, I'm just going to present my thoughts, share a little scripture, and then we'll, um, oh, we can have a conversation later if you like. Uh, well, any, anything, uh, before we jump into what these specific gifts are, we need to get kind of the, the field set. There's a few things we need to know about gifts in the New Testament. Uh, the first thing is that every single believer has a gift. Uh, gifts aren't for only some super spiritual people, or they're not for the leaders in the church. They're for every single person. In fact, that's a big part of uh, why they exist. They exist to put us all on an equal playing field. Uh, that's one of the reasons why everybody has a gift. We're all on the same playing field now. You don't have to twist God's arm or convince them that you're super spiritual to give a gift, to get a gift. He is quite eager and uh, able to do this. He gives you gifts because he loves you and he's generous. That's one of the reasons you have gifts. Uh, also, it's important that gifts are received when you uh, become a believer. Some of you have been a believer your whole life. Others of you have become believers uh, sometime later in life. And whenever you become a believer, you get a gift. And so that means that if you're united to Christ, you have a gift. Also important is that gifts, uh, there's a plurality of gifts. There's not just one gift. Uh, there are a number of different kinds of gifts. And this matters for us, how we think about them. Uh, also important just is that some gifts are very normal. You have gifts like administration, like teaching. These are going to kind of look like normal gifts. Others are more spectacular and sensational. And so there's going to be these kind of the, the normal-looking gifts, and then there's going to be really sensational ones like, say, miracles or tongues. And the first thing I want to focus on is the gift of prophecy. Uh, prophecy, here I'll define it, prophecy is the ability to apply Scripture to a particular area of your life. Uh, let me read our Hebrews verse to you. This is also in our bulletin. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared by first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Paul, or Paul himself later connects this to prophecy. These signs and prophecies are, are connected to him. And so prophecy is, is one of the ways that we take scripture, we take salvation, 
uh, we learn what it means for it to be applied to particular sticky, difficult, complex situations we encounter. Uh, if you're a theologically reformed person, this would be meaning that you are adept at the illumination of the Spirit. That'd be one way to put it. It's important that we appreciate that prophecy is always going to be under Scripture. It's not kind of like this. It's not like you have Scripture and prophecy. It's always going to be under Scripture. And so prophecy is not a substitute for Scripture. It's not an addition to it. It's actually under it. It's the way that we're applying Scripture to our different lives. And this gifts helps us do that in a really careful, uh, God-honoring kind of way. Um, Prophecy can be, like I was suggesting, prophecy can be very normal. Uh, That looks like advice giving. Someone comes to you and they say, my boss seems to keep passing me up for promotions. I'm wondering if it's because we don't party on the weekends. You know, is is that the reason? How do I handle this situation? A prophetic gift would be a person who's able to think in a way that's very God-honoring and biblical about that situation, kind of a difficult situation to deal with. But prophecy can also present itself in kind of unusual ways, like dreams and visions. Uh, This might sound strange to some of you, talking about dreams and visions, but I think what happens in this is that God is simply applying Scripture to different parts of our lives. I was reading an account this week about a vision, or as a dream, that somebody had. And they were telling a story about their dreaming, and they saw an angel reading a book. And they go over to the angel and they say, what's this book about? And they say, I'm reading all of your sins. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. They're exposed, they're crushed. And then all of a sudden, a hand comes over the shoulder of the angel, and it's got a hole in the palm, and it's dripping blood out of the hole. And it right on the book, and begins to smear all over the book. And then the dreamer says to the angel, what are you reading now? And he says, I can't see anymore. All I see is the blood. And what this is applying is not some new truth. There's nothing added onto this. It's actually applying to this person's heart a very central truth to our our faith, which is that Christ's Christ's blood covers all of our sins. This is what it means to be having visions and prophecy. Uh, Visions and dreams is that they're applying scripture to us in ways that are uh, interesting. And I will say, uh, um, we'll talk about this later, actually. Um, (laughs) uh, Prophecy, it might help us to understand it by distinguishing between teaching and preaching. So you have prophecy on one here, it's it's a scripture-related thing. And you have teaching and preaching, which are kind of also scripture-related things. So how are they different? Uh, And... What you see in prophecy is that it tends to be a more intuitive, spontaneous, I'm going to use a technical word, non-inferential way of thinking about the Bible. Say it's non-inferential means that you're, you're not reasoning from Scripture. You're not making kind of this verse connects with this verse, with this verse type stuff. It's really something that you're not aware of the whole process, even though those beliefs are coming from Scripture itself. I was thinking of an example. I don't know if this will be helpful or not but I was at a restaurant this week and I was feeling a little guilty when I was looking at the menu and I was thinking to myself, I probably got to eat something kind of healthy. And if I had, say, the gift of teaching and I was analyzing the menu, I'd be thinking to myself, you know, I've got to pick stuff that's kind of low sodium, low sugar, low fat, nutrient-dense foods are more preferred, stuff like this. So I said, I'm not going to do the cheeseburger because that's a lot of sodium and I'm not going to, you know, whatever. I like the kale over the spinach because it's more whatever. And and, um, this is the... (laughs) This, you, you guys get what I'm saying right here. 
so this is, this, is the, um, this is what it would look like to apply a teaching gift in this scenario. If I was using the gift of prophecy and I was looking at the menu, I'd be saying to myself, you know, I'd be looking more at the salads and the wraps rather than the you know, burgers and whatever else. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> it's, it's, um, you get what I'm saying. It's, it's an intuitive process to use prophecy. And it's, it's not uh, the fact that we can't name the, prophet, uh, the process doesn't mean it's not coming from Scripture. In fact, a true prophet is somebody who is usually so steeped and saturated in Scripture itself. That's why they're able to be so spontaneous and so intuitive about the whole thing. Uh, the, the teachers themselves are ones that seem to have to actually put a little more work into it. Well, how do we handle this gift? Um, I think the first thing is we need to take it very seriously when people come to us with advice or even a more explicit kind of prophetic word. Uh, scripture itself warns us. It says there are false prophets out there. Uh, they're here to harm us. And some of them are even uh, working for the enemy, or the, the dark spiritual powers. Um, and so we need to be very discriminating and careful when we take people's words that we're checking against the Scripture. And if something's not able to be checked against Scripture, I'd say we should be kind of suspicious of it. That's kind of that's what I think. Uh, another thing, this is how I've tried to work this out in my own life. You don't have to do this. I've tried to develop a team of prophets who can advise me on different areas of my life. You know, so there's kind of the school professional life, there's the emotional relational life, there's, uh, you know, recreation, there's all these things. And it's uh, my responsibility to pursue holiness in each one of these things. And as I come up against complex and difficult situations, I don't know what it's like to actually be honoring God in those situations. I look to this kind of, these prophets in my life who are going to advise me and help me think carefully and discreetly about these situations. So prophecy is... Um, an intuitive gift that's applying scripture to different situations. Another sensational gift is the gift of tongues. Uh, and many of you come from churches that have spent, uh, made a big deal out of tongues. Uh, in fact, I myself, I went to a, a Christian school growing up for part of my education, and tongues was a very large part of uh, the school's theology. and It even played out into our curriculum and how we were educated. And I have personally been blessed by these people, by these by my experience with this school, and I'm very thankful for it. And I know that many other people have been blessed by churches and communities that really uh, center on the gift of tongues. But to be honest with you, I've also met a number of other people uh, who come out of these communities, and they have a lot of wounds. And one of the things that they're told is that if you don't speak in tongues, uh, you are less spiritual, potentially. Maybe God doesn't love you. Uh, maybe even uh, you're not a Christian. And this is such a pervasive thing, I kind of want to speak candidly about this, these experiences. I want to talk about what gifts are, what tongues are in general, but I do want to speak to this experience, which I find to be very common. Uh, I don't like stating my theology in the negative. I usually like to say what I believe, rather than these people are wrong. Uh, but I do want to just say a quick word about uh, what Scripture has to say about tongues. Scripture is very clear that uh, tongues, uh, tongues is not essential for the life of a believer. Uh, in fact, it's very unbiblical, un unwise to say something like that. One of the things that Scripture is very clear about is that all the promises of the gospel belong to you through faith in Christ. 
Uh, if you are united to Christ, there are no more promises, there are no more spiritual blessings that you are awaiting. Everything belongs to you because of Jesus. Uh, not anything else that you have to add on or tack on to that. Uh, one of the reasons we, we think this, one of the reasons I think this, uh, certainly, is because it runs to say tongues is essential for the life of a believer. It runs counter to how Paul develops his whole argument at the end of uh, the First Corinthians letter. Uh, one of the things he's saying is you are too obsessed with the gift of tongues. He's not saying you need more tongues. He's saying you need to put less focus on tongues. Quit obsessing over it. And he argues that in part by saying there's supposed to be a diversity of gifts. There's not supposed to be one gift that everybody's using and operating out of. There's supposed to be multiple gifts, tongues, prophecy, teaching, administration, and so on. Uh, and so uh, we find that tongues is really not essential. Uh, one common pushback against that is to say that um, Paul distinguishes between tongues as a gift and tongues as a sign. Uh, and I think the problem with this is that it doesn't appreciate the fact that Paul is equivocating on those two words in his argument uh, in chapter 14. He's, he's talking about the exact same facility. He's just talking about how they operate slightly differently in the church, different features, different things they do. But what, though, is uh, the tongues? What is tongues? <laughs> what, is that, what is that gift about? Uh, obviously, I can't. I've got tongues issues, so I don't have the gift. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm spitting all over the Lord's Supper right now, so I'm. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, it's covered. <laughs> that's why. That's why we cover it. So, <laughs> um, tongues. <laughs> uh, tongues. People have different takes on. It. So people will say tongues is a celestial kind of angelic language potentially. Uh, people will say that tongues is the ability to speak in another language uh, that you never learned. Other times, people will say tongues is the, just an aptitude towards language. You know the people that know half a dozen languages and they're always they're telling you they're learning another one? Maybe that's what tongues is. Uh, here's what I think. I think tongues tends to be more on that latter end of things. I think tongues has to do with uh, actual human languages that people are using to declare the gospel to other people. Uh, one of the areas I see this in is uh, the Pentecost event where tongues first happens. Uh, if you look at that, it's Acts 2, and you see that the sport spirit is poured out on people, and the expression of the Spirit's presence in people's lives is that people are speaking in other languages that they never learned, and they're using it to declare the gospel to other people. So let's say Dan is uh, a Greek, and I'm a Roman, uh, and this was Pentecost. I would suddenly find myself speaking in Roman or Latin or whatever you speak, at declaring the gospel to you and encouraging you. Uh, one of the very important things that you see about tongues is that they're almost always missional. If you read the book of Acts, uh, tongues are, um, you know, you see the church starting in Jerusalem and it's expanding all over the place. It's, by the end of the book, it's all over the Mediterranean. And you see uh, that tongues is always on the frontier of God's kingdom. So you say, when are people speaking in tongues? It's when the gospel is pushing out into territory where um, people don't know the Lord. And tongues are one of the ways that you confirm the fact that people are being brought into God's kingdom. And they're one of the ways that you actually declare the gospel to other people. Uh, and so tongues have this uh, special role of being adept at languages in order to declare the gospel to other people. The last gift I want to look at is uh, 
one that many of you would find strange uh, or uh, not expect to be a gift, but it's the gift of celibacy. Um, uh, some of you haven't heard of this before, but it's a gift that Paul identifies himself as possession, possession, in possession of. And you see it in 1 Corinthians 7 where he talks about this. And the gift of celibacy is more than just the ability to abstain from sex. It's the call to singleness. Uh, and what Paul tells us, the reason this is considered a gift, even though maybe not everybody would consider that a gift, uh, it's a gift in part because he's able to be wholly focused on his work and his ministry. When you have a family, you're divided between your work and your family life. And someone like Paul was able to be in fifth gear doing ministry for his entire life uh, in a large way because he, was, uh, uh, he had no family to, uh, that would take away his intention. <coughs> uh, this is a gift that we don't always see in our churches. For some reason, it's a little more uncommon. Uh, but I, I do think uh, in, in seminary, you find it quite regularly. You have all these people who are pursuing vocational ministry. Uh, and I have a, a buddy named Gil. Uh, and Gil has decided for various reasons that God has called him to a life of singleness. And he actually has a really profound ministry. Uh, he travels the country consulting different churches on how to deal with hot topics and how to think carefully and be relevant about different sticky, difficult issues. Uh, he's also a professional liturgist at his church. He writes the, the Sunday service and he writes scores of music and does all these things. Uh, he's a professional counselor and he's a semi-professional writer maybe, or a really, really accomplished writer in, in his own way. And he's able to do so much. He's able to take this massive workload in a large part because God has truly blessed him with this gift of singleness, gift of celibacy. Now the gift of celibacy uh, doesn't always feel like a gift. And one of the reasons it doesn't always feel like a gift is because you don't always feel like you fit in with your church and the culture all the time. One of the reasons we don't, you don't always feel like you fit into the church is because um, our church rightly values celibacy and values sexual purity, but it doesn't always value singleness. Uh, and many times you feel like you're a bit of an outsider if you're a single person. And for, for Mary's, this is kind of an understandable thing because uh, you're not thinking what is the experience of a single person. But singles many times feel, feel the fact that they're this uh, numerical minority. They're very well the fact that what most people talk about is their families. Uh, they're very well aware of the fact that most of the church resources are given over to, to family ministry. And family, of course, matters to God, and it should matter to all of us. We, uh, we should, everyone should value that. But it, uh, the unfortunate thing is that there's oftentimes very little space given over to both singles and marrieds. Singles experience the opposite in culture. Culture doesn't value celibacy, but it values singleness. Uh, that's kind of the, the irony with that. Um, many people, they find that they're not self-conscious of their singleness. Uh, they find that they have a place to belong, and yet there is constant pressure to compromise on their different ethical values they hold. I was talking with a friend this spring uh, she's a believer. She's in her late 30s. Um, and she's uh, single. And she said that most of her friends are non-Christians largely because she doesn't feel accepted in her church, which is unfortunate. It's really just sad for me to hear that. Uh, so what's our takeaway with this gift? 
It certainly means that if someone is naming the fact that they have the gift of celibacy, if God is calling them to singleness to serve the church, it means honoring them and dignifying them and enabling them to serve as much as possible. But more generally, it means that we want our churches to have space for both singles and marrieds. Uh, we want to know singles and marrieds on a first-name basis and to be uh, having them into our homes and to be doing recreation with both different groups of people. We've looked at a few different gifts, a few specific gifts, uh, some of the more obscure ones, maybe the ones that are confusing. Um, if you felt more confused through this, talk to me. <laughs> the goal is to bring some clarity, but if you feel confused, certainly talk to me or email me. We can hang out. Um, but I want to end by looking at gifts in general. Say, so, uh, we were talking about what are gifts. That's how we started off talking. And uh, we said that gifts are the spoils of war. But the, there's another very important definition to gifts. And that is that gifts are the presence and ministry of Christ to us. When someone serves us with a gift, it is not only that person coming near to us, more importantly, it is Christ himself coming to actually minister to us. And it's through gifts that Christ draws near to us and loves us and serves us. So that is to say, when somebody comes and teaches you and instructs you about how God, who God is with their gifts, uh, it means that it's really Christ himself teaching you about who he is. And when you're broken and hurting and somebody comes and sits next to you to encourage you, it is ultimately Christ himself coming to encourage you. This is something that I think is uh, really amazing and encouraging, so I want to look at scripture just to make sure we, we get this point. Uh, look in your bullets and it's at our First Corinthians reading. Starting at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. That phrase uh, in verse 5, of uh, varieties of service with the same Lord, is something that is used elsewhere by Paul in the New Testament to describe people who are actually representing Christ to others in the church. So that to say, and it's, it's talking about the uh, gifts right here, so it means that through our gifts, we are actually being Christ to other people. Verse, um, verse 6 goes on to talk about God empowering all things, which he's talking about gifts, to everyone. And that word empower there is, uh, means affecting sometimes or means uh, working. So that's to say that through gifts, God is actually working on each of us uh, through, through people as an instrument. So why does this matter? Um, I think one of the things we all long for at different points in our lives is to have deeper, richer experiences of God's presence. Uh, many times in our lives we feel like God is distant uh, we look at trees and rocks and people and we kind of think to ourselves, why isn't God fill and why don't we experience in him in this very real way that we do everything else in life? But the truth about gifts is that God's love and presence is never further than the person sitting next to you. God has come close to us in the body of believers 
And when someone serves you with their gifts, it is ultimately Christ coming near you to minister to you. So we've looked at spiritual gifts as Christ's ministry and spiritual gifts as the spoils of war. And one of the things we discover as we examine gifts is Christ's alchemy of redemption. An alchemist in the past was somebody who would take ordinary and even profane things and through his art he would turn them into something precious. Christ is working his own alchemy in our own lives where he is taking the things that are broken and bland and dark and through his own art he is refining them to be treasures. It's through gifts that we find ultimately the hope of the gospel. Let's pray.